If that doesn't have you ready for the cemetery stroll, I don't know what else will. Thank you, James. Uh, Philippians chapter 4 is where we are this morning. So if you would turn there, and uh, as you turn there, uh, we can stand and read God's word together. Father God, again, we are grateful for this time. We're grateful for your word. We ask you to be present with us, even now as we read it, that you would allow it to speak into our hearts. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Philippians chapter 4, this is verses 1 through 7. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and my crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. I entreat Eudia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord, Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel, together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers, whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, Let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. This is God's inspired word for us this morning. Please be seated. We're nearing the end of the book of uh, Philippians, so we've come to chapter 4. We don't have a whole lot left. Um, Paul begins this section by dealing with Um, a local church problem that he has heard about. And he's writing to a few women, uh, Eudia and Syntyche, who have labored with him side by side for the gospel. You know, what's the nature of this disagreement? Well, honestly, we have no idea. Um, We do know that Paul values them as partners and that he cares for them deeply and wants them to get back together in agreement for the sake of the Lord and to agree in the Lord. Now imagine sitting together in the congregation and and listening to a letter from Paul, as the churches would have done when they received it, you know, and it would take about maybe 15 to 20 minutes to read this letter from Philippians, and about three quarters of the way through, you hear your name. Imagine the kind of the glares that that would happen as you're looking towards these particular people. You know, it would be kind of awkward, wouldn't it, Lauren, if everybody started looking at you in the middle of the message? He says yes. Um, But the reason that Paul mentions them specifically is because he has a deep passion for unity within the body of Christ. Now, this is a topic that has come up again and again throughout Philippians. Um, You know, this idea that we're all in this together. So let's put off of whatever disagreement we have. Let's put it behind us. And if you can't do it together, then, well, then the church is going to help you to agree. You know, disagreements and divisions are, are dangerous to the health of any ministry and to any church. You know, if division lingers, then the health of the church is at stake. 
as well as the church's ability to reach the watching world. You know, you have people that are watching to see how Christians interact, how do they deal with each other, how do we, how do we deal with disagreements? You know, after all, we're only human, so we're not going to agree on everything, but as we do, if we do as believers, how do we deal with those things? The world is watching. And now we reach this other gem here found in, ch- in chapter 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say again, rejoice. Now, if you're somebody that highlights or um, underlines things in your Bible, I'm assuming that you have this verse already starred, uh, highlighted, underlined, circled perhaps. Rejoice in the Lord always. You know, always means no exceptions. There's no loopholes. You know, Paul doesn't say here, rejoice in the Lord always except when someone has offended you. You know, he doesn't say, rejoice in the Lord always unless something unexpected happens and your plan has been interrupted. You know, in fact, we see that Paul is writing where? From prison. And, and as he's writing, he's waiting to find out whether he is going to live or die as he has appealed to Caesar. He knows despair. He's been abandoned, he tells us, by all but Timothy and Epaphroditus. He knows loneliness. He's getting reports back from others that, that there are those within the church that are taking the gospel and misusing it for their own personal gain. He knows what it means to be let down by other people. Yet the command that Paul gives us is to rejoice, to rejoice in the Lord, rejoice in the Lord always. If we missed it, he says, let me say it again, rejoice. There are no exceptions when we aren't to rejoice in the Lord. Now, again, this doesn't mean that life is going to be luxurious, that everything is going to go our way. Uh, Christians are, are guaranteed stress and interpersonal conflict, humiliation, sickness. We're guaranteed death. We see poverty and hunger and famine and disaster and all sorts of things happening in the world around us. And because of those things, command, rejoicing in the Lord is a command. It's not a luxury. It's a command. Consistently rejoicing is necessary to experience the transcendent peace of Christ. So what do we have to rejoice in? Well, the the clear answer is right there. Rejoice in the Lord. Here's three reasons that we can rejoice in the Lord regardless of our circumstances. The the uh, The first reason, the first way we can rejoice is rejoicing in the nature and character of the Lord as he has revealed himself throughout history. You know, remembering his great and mighty deeds, remembering all that he has done for his people since the beginning. You know, the prophets are constantly telling God's people to remember, to remember the Lord, to remember the great things that the Lord has done. Is anybody like me? Is anyone here bad at remembering? Just a few of us. Okay, that's good. Um, you know, I am so bad at remembering important things, like what time to pick up my daughter from school. It doesn't change every single day. It is the exact same. And yet every time I'm looking down at my, down at my phone, it's, oh, it's 2.47. I need to be there in 12 minutes. You know, and yet I can remember the stupidest things, like every play at a baseball game I was at five years ago. I can remember all those things, and yet I forget the important things, and that's what God's people have been like historically. That's why God's prophets tell the people constantly to remember what the Lord has done for them. 
In the course of history, God has acted in some incredible ways on behalf of his people. See, at first, he, he takes this barren, old, nomadic man and he promises to turn him into a great and mighty nation with descendants as more numerous as the stars. He uses a man who is betrayed by his brothers and sold off into slavery as the one that would save his own family from a famine. He uses a speech-impaired murderer to lead his people out of the bondage of Pharaoh in Egypt to lead them into the wilderness and into the land that he has promised. He leads them across the Jordan River on dry ground, and as they're crossing, he commands each each tribe to select one person to grab a rock from the center, from the bottom of the river, and place it on the shore to remember and remind their children what God had did for them there. He uses small boys to kill large giants. He saved the faithful from fiery furnaces and ferocious lions and false prophets. And ultimately, he sent his son. He came to earth to teach and to preach and to heal and ultimately to give his life for us. And Jesus even commanded his disciples at the Last Supper, when you eat this bread and drink this cup, do what? Remember. Remember me. And there's so much more that God has done. Remember not what we've done, but remember what God has done throughout history. The nature and character of God that he has revealed as he has acted throughout history. The second thing to rejoice in is to rejoice in what God is doing now. Rejoice in the way that God has worked in your life. The way he is working in your life. First and foremost, we see that in salvation. But it doesn't stop there. Rejoice in the fact that God knows and hears and answers your prayers. You think back to those prayers that you have written down or or those things that you have long ago requested. The concerns of our hearts that God has taken care of. Think of his provision for all of our needs and, and, and remember that he doesn't just stop at supplying our needs. He takes care of our wants. He's given us blessing after blessing. He's the giver of all good gifts. And remember not just what he's doing in our lives, but what he is doing around the world. Throughout the world today, even now, the gospel is spreading. And amazingly, it is spreading in some of the darkest places on earth. It's spreading throughout the Muslim world. It's spreading throughout China. It's spreading throughout Africa. The kingdom is advancing, and God is at work even now. Remember that. Rejoice in that. And finally, rejoice in what the Lord has promised to do for us. 1 Peter 1, verses 3 through 4, reads this, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. Rejoice in the fact that God will see us through all the way to the end, that his promises are undefiled, that they, are, they, they cannot be taken away from us. He promises to come and restore this broken world and to restore our broken hearts and to restore our broken bodies and to replace them with things that cannot be broken. In this, we rejoice. So rejoice in what the Lord has done in the past, what he is doing now, and rejoice in what he will do in the future. 
throughout history, throughout our lives, and throughout the world. And rejoicing in the Lord ensures that our faith is healthy and strong. You know, if I only rejoice when my circumstances are good, my faith is not going to be very strong. If I only thank God for the blessings that I have, if I don't recall the things that he has done for me, if I can't look beyond my own self, then I'm going to have a very myopic faith, a faith that doesn't see past my own present circumstances. And the problem, even with rejoicing when things are good, is that oftentimes we take the credit for our own lives, you know, for our own successes. You know, look, at, look at me, look what, look what I've done. Sometimes we even say, well, look how blessed I am, but, but really we want other people to kind of give us the credit for that. You know, I have to be careful when I rejoice in the good things because oftentimes I mistakenly believe that I'm the one responsible. See, when all goes well in life, I start to take the credit if I have that type of faith. And then if things aren't going my way, then I start to pass around the blame. It's, it's pretty easy. I can blame just about anybody. I can blame my parents. I can blame uh, the schools. I can blame the government. I can blame uh, the person that cut me off in traffic. You know, they caused me to be angry and, and, and say something that was not very nice. In fact, sometimes we even blame God if things don't go our way. You know, if we're blaming, then we're not rejoicing. So rejoicing in the blessings of God and rejoicing in the person of God are two very different things. If we only rejoice in the good things of faith, if we only rejoice in our blessings, then we're not really rejoicing in the Lord. The command isn't to rejoice in the gifts of the Lord, but it's to rejoice in the Lord. Rejoicing when, not just when circumstances are ideal, but rejoicing always at all times. Paul continues, he says, Let your reasonableness or your gentleness be known to everyone. See, rejoicing in the Lord will always result in a reasonable and gentle spirit. It will be plainly evident to others if we have been rejoicing in the Lord. It's a stark contrast to the reality of the world, to be reasonable and gentle. He says to do that because the Lord is at hand. And the Lord is at hand in, in, in two ways. He is at hand both in space and in time. If he's at hand in space, that means that he's near. He's with us even now in the midst of our trials and difficulties and celebrations, that he's with us in the highest of highs, with the lowest of lows, the Lord is with us. In Psalm 46, it says that God is our refuge and our strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam though the mountains tremble at its swelling. See, he is present even in the midst of trouble. When the earth gives way, when the mountains shake, when the waters roar, when the storm clouds gather, when everything is turned against us, we don't have to fear if the Lord is with us because he is at hand. And anxiety and worry often enter into our lives when we forget that the Lord is near. And we think mistakenly that it's our responsibility to take care of everything. That it's up to me to solve the problems of the world and of those around me. God is also at hand in time. When will Jesus return? Soon. What does that mean? Soon. 
Uh, that, that's what it means. You know, the Lord is at hand. He will return soon. Soon is sooner than it's ever been before, right? The Lord is at hand. He's at hand in time. He's at hand in space. And because of that, he says, do not be anxious about anything. You know, there's a few ways I think that we typically deal with anxiety. Um, Here's what this doesn't mean. It doesn't mean that we're just supposed to ignore our problems and hope that they go away. Uh, Did you know that men ages 20 through 40 are twice as likely to die from any cause than women? Did you know that? The number one reason for this, they say, is that men don't go to the doctor. They don't go to the doctor. In one study, they found that three times more men than women said that they had seen a doctor. They had not seen a doctor in the last 12 months. Three times more. And the reasons that they gave, here's the top three reasons that they don't go. One is that they're too busy. The second one is they're too afraid that the doctor will find something wrong. And third, they don't want to be uncomfortable. Okay? You know, it's kind of like saying, well, if I don't go to the doctor, then I'm not sick. Or I know I'm sick, but, but I, you know, I can kind of deal with this for a while, and I'll wait until I'm really slammed and I can't get out of bed, and then maybe I'll go, I'll go see it by the, you know, at that time. It doesn't really make any sense. See, Paul's not saying that if we ignore our problems that they'll go away, and, and peace is not found in ignorance. It's not found in ignorance. You know, we're not supposed to just be passive and, and active and, and, and apathetic and ignorant of the problems of our life. In fact, sometimes, though, we go to great lengths to cover up, to kind of pretend like we don't have any cares or anxieties at all. We fill our lives with activity, and we think that if I can just stay busy enough, then I won't be worried about the real problems of life. Well, that isn't peace. It's ignorance, and the fact is it doesn't even work. If you have a Bible, flip over to Matthew chapter 6. Verses 25 to 34. And in fact, Jesus says a little something about worry and anxiety. Matthew 6, starting in verse 25. This is Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. He says, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, or what you will drink, nor about your body what you will put on. Is not life more than food, and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin, Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. 
I love this passage. It's so convicting. Which of you, by being anxious, can add even an hour to his span of life? It's amazing that Jesus hits the nail on the head here. You know, anxiety doesn't produce longer life. In fact, we know that stress and anxiety are literally killers. Um, They're deadly to our bodies and they're deadly to our souls. If you've ever seen the pictures of President Bush on the day of his inauguration and President Bush on on his last day of office, I mean, the guy aged about 30 years in the span of eight years. It's incredible. Why is that? Because he's added on to him literally the stresses and problems of the world. So Jesus says, when should we be anxious? Never. In what situations? None. And yet we ask ourselves, when are we anxious? Well, pretty much always. Uh, In what situation? Pretty much everything. Um, And yet all of these scenarios that Jesus spent his time listing and describing a lot of us spend a whole lot of mental energy on. The cure for anxiety is not found in ignorance or apathy, but the cure for anxiety and fear and worry we find as we turn back to Philippians 4 is in prayer. In chapter 4, verse 6, we read, With prayer and supplication and thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. You know, don't pray just in vague generalities or saying the same thing over and over again? Do you ever find yourself repeating yourself, saying the exact same words every time you pray? That's a sign that we're not putting a whole lot of heart and thought into our prayers. And this is something that we work with with our our girls uh, when it comes to our evening prayers at home. You know, especially with Kaylin. She's got like her routine prayer that she says every single night. Thank you, Jesus, for this day. Help me sleep well tonight and have a great day tomorrow. Amen. It's a race. She just wants to get done and get to sleep and get to bed. And when I hear this, I remember that she's learning to pray by listening to us. And I'm going, oh my goodness, is that what I sound like? Do I put any thought or any heart or or anything into my prayers? See, routine prayers lack conviction and feeling, and they're empty. How should we pray? Well, Paul says, by presenting our requests to God with thanksgiving. When he uses the word request, what he means here is to be specific. Share your specific concerns. Open your heart to the Lord. What are the things that are causing you anxiety and stress presently? Are we taking those things to God? Most of us aren't just anxious about generic situations and life in general, though some, some people are. Our concerns, they are certain things. They are real events. They are real situations. You know, when I was younger, um, the biggest fear that I had was going to the dentist. I hated it. Um, if, if I knew I had a dentist appointment sometime that day when I was, when I was younger, my, my parents would tell me, and my strategy would, was always to get on my bike and to go for a bike ride and be gone as long as I could be. Successfully, one time, I was able to skip an appointment because I was out on a bike ride and didn't come back in time. My parents figured that out pretty quickly. They just never told me when I had a dentist appointment. They'd say, hey, get in the car. All right, where are we going? You'll find out when we get there. You know. <laughs> it was one of the greatest concerns 
of my life. And I'll say, as I've gotten older, my personal experiences at the dentist have not gotten any more pleasant. I was just there this week. It wasn't a great time. However, my perspective has started to change a little bit. And we've gone on mission trips to the Dominican Republic. And the biggest thing that people ask for when we get there, what do you guys need? They say, dentists. Dentists. Well, what does a medical dentist, dental team look like? I've talked to some friends that are dentists, and they've gone on these medical trips, and they will literally walk into a village. People will be lined up for hours. They'll come sit down in the chair, and they just point to the tooth that they want pulled, and that's it. They don't, make a, they don't make a sound. They say thank you when they're done, and then they leave. And so I started to understand as I'm sitting in my comfortable air-conditioned dentist office, uh, watching television and um, enjoying pain-killing uh, medication, that this is something that I ought to be incredibly thankful for. And what a great opportunity to pray for those who would love to be sitting in that chair instead of me. You know, here's an hour of my life that I can spend time praying and thinking of the people that I've encountered, and I know faces and I know names that I can be praying for those people. Be specific. You know, when we confess our concerns and our anxieties to the Lord, an amazing thing happens. It's like confessing our sins to God. If we don't confess just in generalities, but when we confess specifically, our sin starts to lose power over us. When I take my concerns and my anxieties and my specific worries to the Lord in prayer, and when I ask my fellow believers to join me in prayer for those same same things, when I write them down in my prayer journal, when I can name them, then they start to lose power over me, and I get to experience the peace of God, and I'm reminded that God has been able to take care of everything else in my life, that no matter what I've got on the horizon, he is still able to take care of it. You know, we don't go to the doctor and say, doc, I'm hurting, just give me a pill and make me feel better. Well, not most of us. What's the doctor going to say? Where are you hurting? Let's, Let's figure this out. Let's run some tests. Let's get to the root of the issue. Prayer can work like that. And prayer really does change things. And and one of the amazing ways that prayer works is by changing us. You know, it's hard to stay angry when we pray. It's difficult to be self-righteous when we pray. It's hard to stay petty and needy in our prayers. And when we come to God in prayer, we're reminded of our inadequacies, reminded of the Lord's power, reminded that God has never asked us to take care of all the world's problems. See, peace and confidence are ours as we come to him in faith, and our hearts and minds are reestablished on the Lord. See, peace transcends our lives as we enter into the presence of the Lord in prayer. When we take our concerns and requests to him, that's where we find Peace. It's transcendent peace. Peace that will guard our hearts and our minds. Like the Roman soldier that was guarding Paul in prison. Isaiah 26.3 reads that you keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. 
So the first part of perfect peace is understanding that we have peace with God personally. You know, peace in my standing with the Lord. I don't have to guess. I don't have to guess what the Lord thinks of me. I don't have to guess if the Lord loves me, if I have peace with God. Jesus made and became that peace offering on my behalf once and for all. And to know him is to know peace. Eternal peace with the Lord, which is the only ultimate peace that truly matters. It all starts there. And the key to perfect peace is allowing our minds and our hearts to dwell on God and not on ourselves. And we don't have peace because our faith is strong, but we have peace because we have faith in a strong God. The peace that surpasses all understanding, which also means that it surpasses all description. It's one of those things that you can't even really describe it, but if you have it, you know it. And that's the peace that Paul has been talking about here. He knows it. He's lived it. He's experienced it. Part of peace is understanding that God is in control. And it's not just that God gives us a Xanax to be blissfully ignorant of the problems of the world around us. But peace comes from knowing the one who made it all, who upholds it all, and holds all things together. And he is working all things together for the good of those who love him. It's a belief and a hope that God knows what he's doing. And Paul's lived it. And here's our questions for us this morning. Do we rejoice always? Do we have peace? How do we handle the unexpected things of life? Is our gentleness and reasonableness known to everyone? When the plan changes, do we distinctively, instinctively turn to the Lord in prayer? Or do we think that's our time to go to action? If we can answer these questions honestly and we're not satisfied with our answers, then it's time to ask for help. It's time to go to the doctor, to not be afraid. When we come to the Lord, it might be uncomfortable at first, but it is the only way to find true peace. Let us pray. Father, we are grateful that you have all things in your hands. Lord, there's nothing that we can encounter, there's nothing that happens in our lives that you have not already foreseen and where you are not at work. Lord, we pray that you would help us to be at peace with you by rejoicing in you, rejoicing in what you have done. God, that our present circumstances would never keep us from enjoying the peace that comes as a believer. Lord, and for those who do not have peace, Father, we ask that you would be at work to bring peace to their hearts. First, Lord, by by making sure that they know you. Father, if we don't know you, we can't have peace. We'll never find it here. But Lord, if we know you, we have peace and we have it absolutely. And so, Father, we, pay, we pray that you would convict our hearts even now. Lord, that if we do not know you, that we would come to know you. That your spirit would be at work in each heart here. 
We're grateful for your word and we're grateful for the, grateful for the promise that you have for us. We ask all this in Christ's name. Amen.